Okay, so we're on the Hebrews, and that doesn't mean we're going to have more coffee. Uh, we're attempting, we're attempting to learn something out of the Word. Amen. Let's go to Hebrews chapter two. We'll start there. We'll dive into a few spots here. Um, some of you were so kind last week. You said that you it was good, and and I knew you were being kind. That was that was good. <laughs> Hallelujah. Well, the Bible's always good. Amen. Hebrews chapter 2, uh, and I'm going to start and immediately launch back into chapter 1. How's that for fun? Because Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 2 starts out this way. For this reason, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. For this reason, we must, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. For what reason? For all of chapter 1. For everything that he's just written in chapter 1. For that reason. For everything that he just expounded upon, everything that he just opened up to us. And uh, I've actually got a few slides that we'll throw up. Uh, there's so many of them in chapter 1 that I think we've got four slides to, to throw up. And I noticed, I think I have one that's repeated. So therefore, if that's true, if we discover I made a mistake, then there's 15 critical things that are revealed in chapter 1 that he says, therefore, therefore. And he's he's talking to those that those that have been around the apostles, those that have actually heard firsthand from those that were with Jesus. So he's not talking to those like 2,000 years later uh, as we are today. He's talking to those that have actually heard. They heard the story how they walked on the road to Emmaus. They heard the story about how he raised the dead. They heard the story from those that were actually there with him. They've actually heard from those who spent 40 days with him after he rose again. 40 days after he rose from the dead, he spent with them telling them about the kingdom of God and explaining to them the law and the prophets and revealing to them every, every shadow, every type, everything that was written before and how it explained Jesus. And so he says, for this reason, and here's these things, we want to run through these, uh, that he had told us in chapter 1. Number 1, Jesus is superior to the prophets. Number 2, Jesus is superior to the angels. Number 3, he's the number one spokesman for God. So of all of those that have spoken before, now he's speaking through the Son. Jesus is number 1. Uh, and he's telling us even in this day that, that there might be a lot of voices out there, but there's one that is the spokesman for God. The number one spokesman for God is Jesus. He's the heir of all things. He's inherited all things from God. He's the supreme heir. He's, he is the firstborn son. Number five, he has made all things. This Jesus is also the creator this Jesus is not only the Redeemer, but he was there at creation. Number six, he is the radiance of Father's glory. Number seven, he is the, the representative of God. 
Number eight, he sustains all things by his word. So not only, and we're told in chapter one, not only did he make all things with his word, but that he sustains them. They're actually held into place. And I, I love that because uh, it, it speaks to the idea that, that once he speaks, uh, he releases that which is unalterable. He doesn't change his mind. And, and we're told further on, you know, in Hebrews chapter 11, that everything visible has been made out of that which is invisible. That which is invisible. The word of God has created everything that is visible. Number nine, he made purification for our sin. Number 10, he's seated at the right hand of God. Number 11, let's see what it is. Number 11, he's superior to the angels. That's my repeat. How many of you know there's mercy in the house of God? Number 12, he has been given a kingdom. Uh, and this, this kingdom, by the way, is a superior kingdom. And, and we're told that, that the scepter of the kingdom or the seal, the signet of that which identifies his authority is his righteousness. So he's been given a kingdom. Number 13, he loves righteousness and hates iniquity. Number 14, he's anointed with joy beyond every person that's ever lived. Number 15, he will outlast the earth. The earth will wear out, but he never will. And lastly, number 16, he's waiting on Father to subdue all of his enemies. Isn't that cool stuff? So this is, this is the context now of chapter 2, verse 1, for this reason... For these, for these fifteen, for these fifteen things that Jesus is the superior one, he is he is not common. He is not he is not like anything that's ever come before. For this reason, we need to be very careful. We need to be very diligent. We need to be very cautious about. Uh, uh, hearing and what we've heard and protecting it and, and revering it and loving what we've heard about him because he's so unique. He is so superior. He's so amazing. Fact is, you know, Hebrews, we're going to be told over and over again how superior he is and who he's superior to and what he's superior to. As the writer is elevating, Paul, we believe, is the writer. And the more I read it and the more I meditate on it, the more I believe that's true. But as the writer is lifting Jesus up above every other influence that's ever been, Jesus is being lifted up. Jesus is being elevated. Jesus is the supreme one. Let's go on. For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Here he's talking about the law that was given. He's talking about, and, and by the way, the law, of course, the first five books of the Bible are, are called the Torah and uh, Leviticus being that which really encompasses much of our understanding about the law is a huge, I think the passage in Leviticus or the, the, the passages about the law is like 13 chapters long. This is a huge part of our Bible. 
And one of the one of the the things that Paul is trying to to shift the reader, the the receiver, the Hebrew people into seeing is that that not only is the gospel equal to the law, but the gospel and its impact, the the gospel message and Jesus is beyond. And so if they realize, if they recognize that, that to not follow what God had given Moses and what God had given us in the Torah, what God, had, if they realize that that carried a penalty and that caused them to have a disconnect from God, more so, even more so, will be disregarding what Jesus has done, setting aside what Jesus has done. That even persecution, no matter what that persecution would be, persecution should not at all deter us from following Jesus because of his greatness. No matter what that would be. Going on, after it was first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. God also testifying with them, both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. How many of you know that it was super important? Again, you're introducing a brand new thing. We've got the Hebrew people, and we've got to put ourselves a little bit in the shoes of the Hebrew people and realize what, what Paul, what the writer is trying to do here. The Hebrew people have had a way to God, revealed by God, and revealed with signs and wonders for 1,500 years. So when Jesus comes on the scene, for 1,500 years, they've had a tabernacle. For 1,500 years, they've been approaching God in a particular way. They've been approaching God with sacrifice. By the way, there's, you know, there's great benefit to this, this scripture, this book, for those of us that are Gentiles as well, and it was as we observe the nations, because all of the nations took their cues from Israel, and all of the influence of the demonic realm was taking its cues from what God was doing with Israel. That is creating replica religions. Replica religions that had ritual, that had sacrifice, that had an approach to God, that had a methodology. And so, so this would also be very applicable and, and here we've got 1,500 years now of tradition, of sacrifice, of a priestly system, of a tabernacle, tabernacle that then became a temple. We've also got an understanding that, that the presence of God is in that building over there. The presence of God is in that tabernacle. It's in that temple. So imagine the giant shift the, and Paul's explaining much of this here, but imagine the giant shift when all at once all of that is being set aside and there's a brand new doorway to God, a brand new understanding of what the temple is. I mean, this is 
for us, if you were raised in church, this is like, how many of you were raised in church? Hands up if you were raised in church. Sunday school, vacation Bible school, something. So probably half of us were raised in church. If you were raised in church, then the Jewish system of sacrifice and priesthood and offering and temple and and that's where the presence of God is, all of that, it, it probably, it's not that big a deal to you. Because you've already been raised in a new creation pathway. You've already come to understand. Maybe from birth, you've understood that the Holy Spirit lives in your heart, that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. But to introduce this to a Jewish audience, to introduce this to Jewish people, to to be inviting the Jewish people to come to know God through the Messiah I don't think they knew this was going to wreck their system this much. They looked forward to the Messiah coming for 1,500 years, right? They're looking forward to the Messiah coming, but little did they know that this would completely wreck their system. This would completely change and alter what they were doing and their approach to God and how complicated it was. They had, think about it, they had employment centers that were built around, right? I mean, a whole, a whole tribe of their people were built around the Levitical priesthood. That's why it's called Levite, the, the Leviticus. And, and so you've got a whole group of people that are built around this, and then you've got This is like Microsoft and Redmond. You've got infrastructure after infrastructure of support that has to happen for sacrifice and for offering and for firewood and for things that we're wearing out with the tabernacle or the temple. You've got so many intricate parts of this system that were all going away. They were all going away. So this, this this was a huge deal. And so I'm bringing, I'm bringing to bear some thoughts about signs and wonders. So that's, that's part of why God loves to bear witness to the new covenant and the revelation of Jesus and the gospel. And what we carry, he loves to bear witness to it with signs and wonders. It is your greatest calling card. Because something has to shift the heart of the people with regard to what they're trusting in. And the people, the Jewish people, were, they were trusting in keeping the law. They were trusting in the sacrificial system. They were, they were trusting in that which had been described to them as a pathway, not only a pathway to righteousness, but they were trusting in, oh, that's where the presence of God is. If we want to draw near to God, we've got to draw near to the tabernacle. We've got to draw near to... So they were, they were trusting in all of this that had once been set forth, and now God is rolling it up and setting it aside and releasing something brand new. So this is part of why we see on the day of Pentecost, when this erupts in their midst, flames on top of their head. Signs and wonders. This is why 
that it says in Mark 16, 15 and following, it says that the Lord went with them. After he rose again, he actually continued to linger with them. After he went up in the cloud, he continued to linger with them, confirming the word with signs and wonders. Confirming the word with signs and wonders. It's our greatest calling card. It's our greatest calling card. With unbelievers, with people who... And I want to encourage you, even as we've heard these testimonies this morning, take more risks than you've ever taken because arguments are not your greatest calling card. Persuasive speech is not your greatest calling card. A placard that says repent is not your greatest calling card. We are living in a land right now. America has, been, has, has become populated with those from other religions who revere other gods. And an argument won't solve it. But a healing will. Pain removed from a leg. The touch of God in our lives will. And it'll open them up. It'll open them up. And this is what this is what God was doing in that day, is that God was bearing witness to the word with signs and wonders. And if you read of the early church, if you read of the history of the early church, you'll read that 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 there was constant signs and wonders deliverances and healings and people raised from the dead. How many of you know that we can actually raise the dead? It's happening today down in Mexico. Uh, David uh, Hogan has seen his ministry in Mexico, over 200 people raised from the dead. Many of us know of, uh, of Smith Wigglesworth, who lived up through the late 40s, uh, and who raised uh, six people from the dead. David and Paula Mahawan over in Thailand, their largest donor died in their kitchen. They had just had a conversation about how he was going to purchase another 50 acres for them and build some properties, and then he died. What do you think they did? They raised him from the dead. My mom said, don't look a gift horse in the mouth, right? If somebody's, if somebody's about ready to give you something, just receive it in the name of Jesus, right? He dies in their kitchen. They look at each other. They know about raising people from the dead. They studied Smith Wigglesworth. They're like, ah! They started praying. After a few minutes... He came to. He looked at his wife and said, scared y'all, didn't I? He'd had a massive heart attack. They got him home to Michigan. He went through heart surgery, but God brought him back. How did God bring him back? Through the prayers of the saints. Through the prayers of the saints. He bore witness, the Holy Spirit, Jesus Yeshua, the risen one, the the redeemer, was bearing witness to the word that he gave those early apostles with signs and wonders. He'll do the same for you. He'll do the same for you. We would do well to skip a lot of arguments. We would do well to skip a lot of theology with those who don't believe and just minister the love of God to them. 
Don't try to qualify unbelievers to get them healed or to bring forth a sign, a wonder, a miracle. It could be a breakthrough in their employment. It could be a breakthrough in their finance. It could be a breakthrough in a broken leg, right? Don't try to qualify them by finding out if they're righteous, if they're born again, if they're saved, if, they're, if they have bitterness in their heart. Uh, don't, 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 don't waste all of your time with that. If, if you have an unbeliever in front of you, they already have some kind of, some kind of, uh, 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 you know, I've been working with a guy uh, recently. And uh, so when I first started talking about the Lord, you know, he said he's got his own, he's got his own way of believing. And I said, oh, cool. What's that? He said, rocks. I said, what? He said, he said, rocks. I said, oh, wow. Tell me more about that. Well, I think there's power in rocks. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there's some mighty big power in those things. I'm telling you what. Uh, what I'm, people have their own. People have their own. And, you know, crazy enough, it's been well over a year. And the other day, Ms. Shaw got to have a, very good conversation with this same person and they've come actually a long way and God's doing something in their heart and we just keep bearing witness to the love of God to them and keep praying for them and ministering and and offering to them that which would bring signs and wonders and and the seal of God's power and God's goodness but people around us, they've already got some kind of a system made up. That's why I told you that story. They've already got some system. Oh, this is how I approach God. This is my sacrificial system. Uh, this, is, this is what the temple is. This is, so they might not be Jewish, but the people around you already have something figured out that this is how they deal with the influence of unrighteousness. This is how they deal with kind of feeling yucky about themselves or needing a relationship with God. They've already got some system figured out. So getting into a big argument about that system may not be all that beneficial. So they, they might not be Jewish. It might not be animal sacrifice, or it might not be a wave offering. It might not be a meal offering. It might not be a, a, a high priest system. But people around us have something figured out, and Jesus is above all of that. Jesus trumps all of that, and he wants to bear witness he wants to bear witness before you get into deep theology. He will bear witness with a sign, a wonder, and a miracle. Do you remember the story? I don't know if you remember the story of Drew Roos, but years ago, Drew Roos told the story. And uh, 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 a family had brought in a young man uh, who was very, just struggling deeply with addiction. And he wanted, you know, he wanted to overcome this addiction, and the family wanted him to overcome this addiction. Uh, and, uh, and he finally consented to come in and sit with this minister friend and so he came in and sat with his minister friend, and he's sitting there with his minister friend, and, and then he, he just, you know, he blurted out this qualification. He said, you know, I don't mind meeting with you and everything like that, but, but, but I just, I, I'm not into this Jesus thing, and I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm not going to become a Christian. Don't ask me to become a Christian, and, uh, and don't, don't ask me uh, anything, you know, anything to do with this Jesus thing. Don't, I, I don't want anything to do with it. 
So Drew said, all right, well, that's okay. Do you mind if I, I mean, I, I've got a relationship with this Jesus guy. Do you mind if I, do you, you mind if I, I mean, if I'm going to help you, I probably, I probably need to talk to him myself. And uh, if that'd be okay, then I think we could move forward. Oh, all right, all right. So, you know, Drew reaches over and kind of puts a hand on him and, you know, commands the addiction to leave him in the name of Jesus. And the guy, you know, all at once, like the power of God hits him and he jumps up out of his chair. I mean, you know, something powerful hit the guy. And uh, he's notably set free through this prayer uh, by, from something. So when he can gain his composure, he sits back down and he's like, what was that? I, I don't know. I'm supposing that was Jesus. Well, I'm, I'm. Happens a couple times, and at the end of the, the end of the third time, he's like, um, "Tell me more about this Jesus guy." <laughs> Powerful things begin to shift in the hearts of those that we love and that we care for and that we have an open door with, powerful things begin to shift when we allow the Holy Spirit to work, when we, when we welcome the Holy Spirit to work with signs and wonders to confirm his word, to confirm who he is, to confirm that our faith is real, to confirm that he is who he said, to confirm that he's superior. He's 15 things above everything else. He's superior to every other being. And when we welcome, when we invite an application of that into people's lives, way before they believe, crazy, good, wonderful things can start to happen. You believe that? So he says he bore witness and he bears witness. He testifies with signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Spirit. Going on, it says, For he did not subject to angels the world to come concerning which we are speaking. But one has testified, saying, What is man that you remember him, or the son of man that you are concerned about him? Now, this is Paul reaching into Psalm chapter 8. And Psalm chapter 8 is actually a messianic passage. You know what a messianic passage is? So, so Israel was looking forward to a redeemer a coming king. Israel was looking forward to a savior. And whenever Israel would get into great trouble, Israel the nation, whenever they would get into great trouble, they would cry out for this redeemer. They would cry out for the Messiah to come, the promised one, right? And so the word Messiah, it, it is also used to indicate that in the Old Testament, there were passage after passage after passage that were passages about the coming Messiah. So, and those passages look, if you just look at them casually, if you look at them casually, they look as if those passages are about the immediate context. But hidden within the context is a truth about the coming Messiah, a truth about Jesus. So those passages are called messianic passages. Okay? Isaiah 53 is a messianic passage that tells us about the Messiah. There's, 
There's just messianic. And once you start thinking about this, once you start realizing, and this is a theme that Paul's going to bring all through the Hebrews, everywhere through this, he's going to bring this theme that actually the Old Testament or the Old Covenant or the First Covenant was actually a shadow of the real thing. That Jesus pre-existed the first covenant, that Jesus was casting his image, there was light cast over his image, that he is the image of God, that he was the image of God from the beginning. And so what we see revealed in the Old Testament and with Israel is actually a shadow of the image. And he's going to bring that to us time and time again. That that Jesus is the supreme one and that he is the image. And so this, this portion here in chapter 2 is a quotation now out of Psalm verse uh, chapter 8, out of Psalm verse 8. And he's going to quote that because he's saying, hey, you guys, do you remember? He's writing to Israel. He's writing to Jewish people. Do you remember we heard about this guy? We heard that there's a coming man. We heard that there's a coming son. What is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man, especially the son of man. That you made him, and some of your translations might say, that you made him a little lower than the angels. But actually the word in the Hebrew is Elohim. That you made him man. Why? Who is man? When you've, got, when you've got all of these creatures, you've got all of these amazing things you've made. You've got the earth, you've got the stars, you've got the galaxies, all, and you've got this little tiny thing called man. Why are you mindful about man? Why are you so enamored and excited about man? And then he's, he's specifically bringing our attention to the Son of Man. Let's read it together. What is man that you remember him? The Son of Man that you're concerned about him. For you have made him a little lower, a, a little while lower than the angels. That's what your Bible's going to say. The Hebrew is Elohim, a little lower than God. You have crowned him with glory and honor. Who's been crowned with glory and honor? Well, we could say that, yeah, in the beginning, man was crowned with glory and honor. We could say in the beginning that, that Adam had splendor, that he had a level of splendor, and that he was made a little lower than God, made in the image of God. We could say that about Adam, first Adam. But we know that first Adam fell, that his image was marred. You've appointed him over the work of your hands. That's consistent with Genesis 1.28. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. But now we do not yet see all things subject to him, to mankind. So we, we see this picture. God creates man. Man has a a level of splendor and glory. God puts all things under man. God's mindful of man. He esteems man. He's made man in his image. But then his image is marred. He falls. And now he's actually lower than the angels, not higher than. 
But here comes the Son of Man. And this passage is about the Son of Man. Here comes the Son of Man. And now we see the Son of Man. And when we see the Son of Man, we see one who has been raised up above the angels. One who has been crowned with glory and honor. One who has been appointed. In other words, we see the fulfillment of God's purpose in Adam fulfilled in the second Adam. We see what God intended in the first Adam completely restored in the second Adam. We see Jesus lifted up as the supreme one over all creation. And then it goes on to say, what do we see with regard to what, you know, right now things are not subjected to him. Even to the Son of Man, we don't see all things subjected to him. In other words, he should be, isn't the scepter of his throne righteousness? Shouldn't he be ruling over all things? Shouldn't he be supreme? Didn't you just tell us 15 supreme things in chapter 1? But yet we don't see that. We don't, we don't yet see all things subject to him. What do we see? We see, and he goes on, we see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, or again, Elohim, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor so that he would taste, so that by the grace of God, he might taste of death for everyone. So we see him, we see him actually in his suffering. We don't yet see him in his supremacy, but yet that's where we're going. Where we're going with Jesus is that he will be supreme over all. And by the way, you know, have you noticed that since Jesus Every sacrificial system, every approach to a God has been fading. Why is it when we go to Europe that the gods have become relics and stories and myths and fables? Because it's not only with the Hebrew people, not only with the Jewish people, has Jesus become triumphant and supreme, but across the globe and with all people. Jesus is triumphant. Jesus is, and Father is putting all of these that were really influences of the demonic to those that knew not God. Israel knew of Jehovah. They had a relationship with Jehovah, but all of these other nations, God is putting away and silencing their approach to their deities that were not God that he might bring all together in Jesus into Jesus. This is why he starts this little section by saying, by the way, he starts this little section by saying, for he did not subject to angels the world to come concerning of which we are speaking. He did not subject to angels the world to come. And this is what he's saying. There, in that day, now this was written in about A.D. 64, I mean, you know, that was a few years ago. So, so go back to AD 64. Nero had just come in to rule in Rome. This is being written in Rome. Persecution is just now advancing under Nero in a very strong way. But they're looking forward to a coming day. They're looking forward to a day of illumination, a day of brightness, a day of light, a day of victory, a day of the growing kingdom. They're actually, even though 11 of the 12 apostles will give their lives as martyrs, 
They're looking forward to the day we live in. They were looking forward to a, a bright breakout of the kingdom. And so he says, concerning the Son, who is supreme, who's now been raised up, who's been crowned with glory and honor, concerning him, he is the one of whom this world that's about to break out. And, and, and the word there, the word is, he did not subject to the angels the impending world, or the world that's about to break open, or the glorious world that is upon us. And I'm giving you the, the understanding of the original language here. The world that is soon to be revealed. In other words, his kingdom has begun, and there is a great, vast breakout about to come. And the leader of that kingdom is Jesus. He is the supreme one. And we live in the light of that day. We live in the light of that day where we can approach him. The word says... That, we can, that his sacrifice is sufficient for us, that we can approach him with confidence. Let's stand this morning as we prepare to close. So many fun things to get into. We're going to get into the shadow and the substance and, and uh, talk about that. We're going to get into a little bit more into the sacrificial system and how Jesus is not only the sacrifice, but he's also the priest. That in Jesus, both elements of that old system were brought together and he became the sacrifice and he became the high priest. How he represents us. Heads bowed, eyes closed just for a moment. It's been on my heart today, coming into today, that, that he is acquainted with our suffering. He's acquainted with our suffering. Holy Spirit, I just ask that you would, that you would even begin to show us how deeply acquainted with our sorrows and our sufferings that Jesus is. That when Isaiah said he became a man of sorrow, it was an entering into our sorrow. That when he came and faced temptation and testing, it was to understand the human plight. It was to identify with us. That, Father, you've given us a God that is not far off, but you've given us a God who is near. That you don't require now, there's a new day that's come, and you don't require in this new covenant life, in this in this relationship with Jesus, this understanding of his lordship and his salvation, that he is Messiah for the whole world, that you don't require that we come with sacrifice. Jesus became the sacrifice. You, you don't require that we come with perfection. 
You're not requiring that we hide until we have it all together. But that you are acquainted with our grief, that you're acquainted with our sorrow, and that you meet us in our mistakes, in our sins, in our difficulties. That you are merciful, a merciful high priest. Exalted, yes, but humble of heart, lowly of heart, and near to the brokenhearted. So we welcome you to touch us. We welcome you to touch us. We welcome your nearness. I'm going to ask the prayer team to come as we close this morning. And I just want to make one more appeal to you this morning. As we consider Jesus, this amazing representative, this amazing sacrificial representative before the Father, that you would let him mend your heart at at the deepest place. That you would let him enter into issues that have caused sadness, circumstances that have caused sorrow, hardship that has been overwhelming. He is the mender of the broken heart. He's the mender of the broken heart. He's the healer. So Lord, we invite you right now. We invite you right now. You who are supreme, that you would come in gentleness, that you would come in redemption, that you would come in your humility and lift us up and lift us up lift us up out of lift us up lift us up lift us up Lord you're the glory and the lifter of our head and we welcome your goodness in Jesus name